0: Important. I mean, at the end of the day, flexibility is strength, right? And so, if you don't have flexibility, if anything changes, you can't adapt to it. And and if you think about just you know the history of civilization, it's all about evolution. And and things that couldn't evolve ceased
1: to exist. You are listening to the AFR podcast. Real estate, technology, cross-border investing, and the opportunities of a changing world. Let's start a conversation now. So everyone in real estate, it seems, complains about zoning laws. It's, it's one of those things that just, I think it drives us bananas because depending on the municipality, it can determine the success or failure of any project. And, and quite often the principles of zoning seem to be completely opposed to the way people want to work, live and play. I mean, why can't I live in an office building, work in a house or go to eat in a parking lot or buy a pair of shoes online after trying them on in a pop-up store? that's what we're doing but our zoning and therefore our built environment is fighting us every step of the way driving up costs and even suppressing growth so what do we do about that well rob seldon who's the managing principal of madison highland live work lofts uh, wrote a fascinating piece in the most recent uh, issue of a fire summit and i'm speaking with him here today in september of 2022 to get his Insights about how zoning has to, is able to change in order to make our built environment better. So, thank you so much, Rob, for joining me on the A Fire podcast.
0: Oh, my pleasure. Thank you, Gunnar, for having me. I appreciate your interest and look forward to uh, exploring this with you over the next few minutes.
1: Excellent. Well, why don't we just start with the zoning itself? Why? why do we have the zoning we have right now you know it, it's it's we're all chafing at it and and why do you think it's out of sync with the realities of today
0: well i mean that's a good question if you go back historically zoning is really a it's a remnant of the industrial revolution mm-hmm. uh, zoning was invented in the united states in the 1920s through a supreme court case, the Euclid versus Ambler, which established the idea that municipalities should be able to control land use and really separate property by function. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so use and function became municipal objectives and municipal points of control. And really it was, it, it makes sense in a lot of respects that you think, okay, you don't want to have an industrial property next to where people live it's noisy it's smelly and you want to have a respite um and so in an industrial context it makes perfect sense that land use would vest with the ground and with what people were doing on it Um, but we are now 100 years later in an in in, an economy that's mostly knowledge-based or information-based and most of the work is done at a computer in somebody's space and so a lot of the the things that you do are no longer nearly as noxious and nearly as requiring of separation. Um, but unfortunately, the way that the zoning universe evolved, uh, it changed the idea that it wasn't just noxious things that should be separated. It was the idea of living and working that should be separated. Um, and now that we can do those things anywhere, um, they are in some respects precluded as a vestige of the industrial revolution.
1: And it seems like we really went off to the races on that in the kind of post-World War II period where we were really separating life, work, play, uh, across great geographies as we had this great expansion in the middle of the 20th century. It, it, it's interesting to me how that blueprint is something that that we're still living with today. So... Well, with mobile tech and work from home and everything that's happening right now, especially uh, through COVID, um, how do we change? What, what is it that, uh, that a better version of a municipality might do around um, their code that, that, that might be more flexible or help kind of deal with the reality we have right now?
0: Well, it's interesting. If you think about it, um, most municipalities and most regulations are set up to exert control right? The idea of regulation is to limit human behavior. Um, And what we've had now recently, especially with the rise of mobile telecommunications, is a liberation and a freedom of people to really do anything in anywhere, right? You now bring with you your work, your information, your recreation, all you're carrying it in your pocket. And so for the first time, uh, land use is really now being vested more in individuals than in places and in buildings. And that's created a real tension. And so to me, the, the right answer is to recognize that anything that really elevates and liberates human potential is, a, is an inveterate good, right? And those should be things that municipalities, building owners, the financial markets, really anybody who has a vested interest in the real estate business should be encouraging. Uh, And we just need to think about how do we create frameworks that enable that to happen. Um, But as you know, it's not just municipalities that are involved in really regulating how real property is adjudicated, owned, and managed. So in addition to zoning and also building codes, which sort of regulate construction types, um, you have a whole host of other industries that have grown up around the idea of separation of function. Separation of use. Um, Brokerage, the brokerage industry, the finance industry, um, the private equity industry, in many instances, the foreign investment and real estate industry, um, all have specific product niches. uh, And those product niches align with traditional ways that land has been divided, subdivided, and real property being used. So, really, all of those mechanisms, all of those functions, and all of those industries have a vested interest in things not changing. Uh, And so you have a real schism between where technology is leading people and where industries that are based upon those changes not occurring uh, create friction.
1: Well, at the same time, though, you do see some uh, investors and developers that are really taking to heart this idea that mixed use is is more valuable than separating and, and you're seeing some of the most successful uh, real estate portfolios really focused on mixed use and and everything being within a block or two or even within the same building or building complex. Um it, it does seem that, that that is a spectrum though, right? So you've got people that are uh, on board and that understand that this is something that that is useful and is perhaps the way people want to live. And then you have vested interests, which I, I think that's kind of interesting. I always think of it as only being the government, right? You know, we, we, we tend to blame the government for everything that's going wrong as opposed to saying, well, we're we're the government. We're all part of that. Um, so I think that's Mm -hmm. an interesting insight.
0: Yeah, no, it's a, a large ecosystem.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, you wrote about, um, what happened over the last 10 years, not just in COVID, uh, to what used to be one of the most stable and predictable office markets in the country, maybe even the world, uh, at Washington DC. Uh, what happened there over the last 10 years that maybe kind of changed the game that way?
0: Well, it's funny, and I should I should preface this with that I'm historically an apartment guy, um, and you know just like the way we were just describing that you have a very siloed universe of product types. Um, you, one of the things that you find in the real estate industry is there is very little cross pollination and cross function. Uh, from one person in one industry or sector of the industry to another. And so I came to everything from the vantage point of an apartment owner, an apartment operator. Uh, But really in in the D.C. area where I live, starting in the early 2010s, we just noticed that there was a tremendous influx of office vacancy, particularly in the suburbs, which was very unusual because this area typically has almost no unemployment. Uh, and it was interesting from 2010 until 2019, the year before the pandemic, the Washington, D.C. area experienced positive job creation every year and every year office vacancy rose. So as the area was gaining jobs, offices were emptying and we were just curious as to why that was. Uh, so we went back and looked and noticed or found that from the end of World War Two until 2009, uh, there had not been any one year when the Washington area had gained jobs and office vacancy rose. And it's happened every year since 2010. So we are like, gee, something obviously has changed. And, and the two things that sort of seemed to happen coterminally, one was the invention of the iPhone. Uh, and the other was that the federal government passed in 2010, a law saying that people should be able to work from home If they work for the federal government. And and it's interesting because if you think about the the federal government, aside from being the largest employer in the DC region, it's also the largest information processing enterprise in the world. And ever since 2008, really, when the iPhone was mass marketed uh, for the first time, all people carry in their pockets the sum total of human knowledge for all of history. And so if you think of what an office building really is, It's a machine for temporarily storing people and permanently storing information for processing. And its value is therefore predicated upon your need to travel to it to get the information to do your job. Well, if you're in an information processing business, you never need to go to the building ever again because the buildings had the information liberated. It's now in your pocket. Um, And so the federal government, interestingly, you think about the government's usually the last to know, uh, was the first large-scale employer to embrace a mobile workforce. And and they told the people, look, you don't have to come to the office. You don't have to work from home. You can do what you think is in your interest. And a large portion of people decided that they wanted to stay, from, stay home. And as a result of that, uh, the government just needed less space.
1: Well, and to a certain extent, the government before that time period was always struggling to house all their workers. I, I seem to remember that being an issue. And the square footage per person here in DC probably was lower than a lot of other uh, markets that should, that, uh, major markets or gateway markets. Um, you know, I, I think that's particularly interesting because the discussion that's going on right now is people are talking about people returning to the office and, you know, what that's going to look like. But what kind of scale are we talking about here in terms of um, how many people? uh proportionally are working from home now. How many people were working from home, say 10 years ago? I mean, is, has that changed? It has changed, but how much has it changed?
0: Uh it, it's really changed dramatically. Um, you know, in 2015, there were about eight million people, between six and eight million people working from home on a regular basis. And that's that was about five percent of the US workforce. Um, you know, when we started looking at this Question about what's happening to office and what's happening and what the directionality is of where the world can be headed. Um, we had contracted with a, a local sort of think tank here in the D.C. area who looked at the uh, trends and the percentages of people who did certain things in certain kind of jobs. and their Their perspective their perspective was that by 2020, this was without knowing the pandemic was going to occur. They felt that uh, a third of the U.S. workforce would have the ability, if not the permission, to work remotely by 2020. And uh, when the onset of the pandemic, that not only came true, but obviously moved well past. So that today in a 160 million person workforce, about 90 million people are working remotely at least one day a week. So if you think about it, that is the single largest migration in human history and fastest that in five years, 85 million more people are now doing something in a place different from where they used to do it. And there's not really anything in our commercial real estate universe or really in our residential real estate universe that either predicted or has solved for really quite well how to accommodate that rapid and, and unforeseen change in demand. It's the single biggest opportunity I think we have uh, as an industry.
1: Well, and when you think about it, and everyone talks about everything you know, going to some level of normal at some point as, as the pandemic loosens, although we haven't really, we haven't seen that happen at the level that I think everyone wishes. To your point, it's such an order of magnitude uh, for us to do that migration again. And what caused that migration was something that was so dramatic that, um, you know, hopefully we won't have something quite so dramatic pushing us back into the office. Um, And it's unlikely to happen for us to go back to eight or 9% working from home after we've been in the world that we're in. So that's huge. But it also, I think, okay, so you're a multifamily guy, and, you know, the business that you're working with is looking at these issues. How does that change? It seems like that changes a lot. Now you're working out of your office. Uh, Your your office is your home. And, you know, that certainly wasn't built for or zoned for that kind of work in the past. How is it impacting residential? Well,
0: I think it's impacting it in a lot of sort of unforeseen ways, you know, because obviously, and, and we talk about this a lot, but that any kind of rational human accommodation that allows people to sort of do the things that they would like to do and improve their lives the way that they would like to improve them is something which should happen, right? And then the question is, how do you overlay that onto an existing framework of buildings and regulations that were created not for that purpose? And so that's really hard to do. Um, And in fact, it's almost impossible in certain circumstances, which really creates a significant potential for rapidly hastening functional obsolescence, both in the office sector and the residential sector. Um, If you think about it, the real difference between commercial buildings and residential buildings are the number of people that they're designed to accommodate and hold, right? An office building is designed for one person per hundred square feet, a residential building is designed for one person for 200 square feet. So as a result, uh, in office buildings, the stairs are wider, the floors are stronger, there's more parking. It's different kinds of sprinklers, different fire alarms. So um, it's actually relatively easy. I don't want to say easy, but it's, it's, it's more direct to convert a, an office building or to overlay onto an office building residential functionality Um, because it's actually a diminution in intensity than it is to layer commercial functionality onto an existing residential building. Um, So where most people would think that there is a natural universe in the multifamily sector as to pick up the slack of this transition and change in how people do things and where they do them, existing multifamily buildings really are not well suited, either legally or structurally, to accommodate sort of tremendous changes in potential utility. Um, the stairs aren't wide enough. The floors aren't strong enough. Uh, it's just not created for that purpose. If you're going to bring filing cabinets, what happens if there's a crack in the floor? Um, does your insurance cover that? All of these questions. What does the CO allow? Um, you know, what happens if there's a fire? You know, are any of these things accommodated correctly? And, and truthfully, they really can't be based upon the way that the existing regulatory framework is set up, both from a zoning and a building perspective. Um, We've been addressing it um, in our business, uh, what our live-work-loft business is really mostly focused on having purchased empty office buildings and then converting them into sort of highly functional live-work spaces in which each of the apartments, they're really kind of cool lofts, but they each have three permitted uses. So you can rent them as an office, you can rent them as an apartment, you can rent them as a combined live workspace. Um, And the goal there really being to create maximum demand against finite supply to create safer income. Um, And at the end of the day, really, that's, if you think about what the, the functional goals of real estate investment are, it's, it's to create safe, supportable income streams and hopefully revenue growth above the secular mean and those Those two things are just difficult to do uh, in an environment of dwindling demand,
1: yeah, but what, what you're and also uncertain demand, so you're creating inherent flexibility within the the physical structure. So that depending on where the demand moves, which we really don't know yet, it seems like every prediction we've made, especially in the last two years has proven to be incorrect. Uh, and as that moves, you're ready to move quickly. And according to uh, customer demand, I think it's fascinating. And. Uh, it, it'll be interesting to see how that continues to play out. I think it's a great idea. Now, it reminds me of of, of a, a favorite uh, quip of mine from the science fiction writer William Gibson: uh, "The future is already here; it's just not evenly distributed yet." And and certainly, it does feel that way. As you talk about how things, say in Fairfax, Virginia, have worked around the the zoning, and how your your multifamily is kind of looking at this in a different way. I don't think I can call it multifamily. It's it's a lot of things. And uh, but. Um, as we see an uneven landscape, an uncertain landscape, what should investors keep in mind as they approach um, acquisitions?
0: Well, uh, I think one, they should be careful. We approach everything from the perspective of you know what do we believe the demand is today? What do we believe the man- demand can be tomorrow? And what is the likelihood of the universe of potential competitors to be able to grow to fill it right because at the end of the day you always want to create a universe where there's a positive supply demand imbalance and so luckily we've being in the apartment business we've always thought about uh, at least recently apartments have become quote unquote the primacy asset type you know i remember a time not that long ago when i was younger in this business when the office industry was considered the primacy asset type, and office had the lowest cap rates. Um, and now that's just not true, right? And so the question is, what's going to happen? Our, the question we ask is, what's going to happen to the apartment industry um, if the universe of demand is continually changing? And how do we allow for the assets that we create and own to adapt to that changing demand? And so the things that we would always counsel our investors to ask is, you know, what happens if, what happens if more people do continue to work from home than go to the office? How does your building allow for that kind of transition? Um, And have you accommodated it in a way that makes sense and that is going to keep you not just ahead of the curve, but in lawfully in working within your Parameters for lending, for insurance, and for your municipal approvals.
1: So certainly you're you're looking at this, you know, you're looking at these eventualities, paying very close attention to it. And I think it, it shows in this article in terms of, of of where you're thinking. Um, but it it occurs to me that a big part of as as you laid out in terms of what your product looks like and what you're trying to do is that. Perhaps flexibility is becoming one of those important drivers or key drivers maybe for the, the end performance and the yield of, of a given asset um how significant do you think that is going to be going forward?
0: Oh, we think that that's very, very important. I mean at the end of the day, flexibility is strength right and so if you don't have flexibility, if anything changes, you can't adapt to it and and if you think about just you know the history of civilization, it's all about evolution. And and things that couldn't evolve ceased to exist. And so as we all are heavily invested in real property, we want real property to be able to evolve with the consumer, not hope that the consumer will continue to change their preferences to suit the real property. Um, Because we think at the end of the day, that's not a, a winning strategy. And so we talk a lot about technology and cyberspace. And if cyberspace is in direct conflict with physical space, right, physical space needs to be at least as useful to its customer as cyberspace is. Because um, if it's not, the people
1: won't pay for it. No, that's absolutely true. And there, to your point, there's so much change going on around us that, that no one person is able to keep track of it. Um, I think it's interesting you talked about evolution. I I remember coming across uh, an analysis of of Darwin that said that we always get it wrong, that it wasn't survival of the fittest that he was talking about. It was survival of those that are most adaptable, Mm -hmm. those that are able to adapt to change. Um, And It seems to me that what you're suggesting here is that that the investor who wins in these uncertain times of great change and disruption are going to be those investors that like the, the the animals that Darwin was studying are most able to adapt.
0: That's right. The investors who, who have the ability to be agnostic to change, right? Mm-hmm. Because that's really what we would like our assets to be and what we would counsel people to choose to think about strategically as they're building a portfolio. How can your portfolio be agnostic to change? That we shouldn't have to be smart enough to predict the future. We should just be smart enough that whatever the future is, it doesn't harm us.
1: And that we're ready to go. I, mm-hmm. I think that's that's incredible advice. How can we be agnostic to change? An excellent question. Well, we, I think we've run out of time here. This is fascinating. I would strongly recommend uh, that uh, everyone take a look at the most recent issue of A Fire Summit. It's online at afire.org. Um, our guest has been Rob Seldon. He's the managing principal of Madison Highland Live Work Lofts. Thank you, Rob, for being a part of the A Fire podcast.
0: No, my pleasure. Thanks for having us.
1: You've been listening to the AFIRE podcast. Remember to subscribe on your favorite podcast subscription service, such as Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, and others. AFIRE is not engaged in providing tax, accounting, or legal advice. No content in this podcast is to be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell any asset. Some information included has been obtained from third-party sources considered to be reliable, though AFIRE is not responsible for guaranteeing the accuracy of third-party information. the opinions expressed are those of its respective contributors and sources and do not necessarily reflect those of AFIRE.